Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. We're going to dig in and continue our series, Living Hope. And Jason and, and Bridget and Ben, others have just done such a, such a wonderful job of leading us through the season of Lent on our way to Easter, on our way to Resurrection Sunday, and giving us a framework for that in the book of 1 Peter. And so today, we're going to continue in that series, but I wanted to kind of container all of this or package all of this uh, message this morning in the story of the triumphal entry. As Jesus enters into his last week of life, he, um, we, we're given the scene in the New Testament and all of the Gospels of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And so everything from 1 Peter, I just kind of want to couch uh, or, or container in the story, the context of the triumphal entry. And so we're going to read that story um, right off the top, and we're going to read it slowly. And I just, as Bridget led us in communion, I'd kind of like to ask the same thing, that we would just close our eyes. The words aren't going to be on the screen or anything. You don't have to close your eyes, of course, if you don't like. But um, just to um, picture yourself in the scene. Place yourself in the scene. Jesus is riding into town on the donkey. All right, so this is Matthew 21, 1 through 11, and as I finish reading it, we'll just pause for reflection and just take a moment and be still before God. Does that sound good? Okay. Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see Your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them And those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. 
God, we welcome your presence. We welcomed you with our worship. And just as the folks who were gathered to welcome you into Jerusalem, we, we waved palm branches. We said, Hosanna. We sang, Hosanna. We sang, save us. I pray that um, you would speak to each one of us this morning. Put your word on our lips. Put your word in our hearts. Put your word in our thoughts. I pray that you would care for folks this morning, Jesus. That among the large crowd that were gathered to throw palm branches at your feet, that you're the God who sees that folks would really felt, uh, feel seen this morning. Seen by a God who loves them enough to send them Jesus. Yeah, let us gather our hearts around your presence this morning, Jesus. We love you. Amen. Amen. So we begin this Holy Week with the Sunday that's called Palm or Passion Sunday. And it's referring to this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The crowds were hailing Jesus as this God-King type figure, welcoming him into the city. But the Passion Sunday refers to later on in the same week when the same crowds have then succeeded in having Jesus sent to the cross. There's this tension. What does it all mean from triumph to despair in less than a week? Do you feel the weight of that this morning? I know I certainly do. I, I feel the mood in the, in the room shift as Jesus' demeanor lowers. As I see grief in his eyes, I mustn't let myself look away. And I challenge you this morning to do the same. Don't look away from the suffering of Jesus. This is Jesus. The answer came. The whole city was asking, who is this? And the answer comes back, this is Jesus, which means that this is the Father. This is Yahweh revealing himself. This is beauty, the timeless, self-existent one whose very nature is to be self-sustaining, the only one that is. 2,000 years ago, he is. 2,000 years in the future, he is. Existing in one eternal moment, he holds all things together by his word. That one, that one is suffering. Grieving, embracing a week of pain. Holy Spirit, help us understand what that means for our lives this morning. That this timeless, ever-existing one is getting ready to face a week of pain and suffering and what that means for us. In First Peter, we're told over and over again from a church that Peter himself has planted to take hope, that we have a, a living hope in the person of Jesus, in this timeless one. A church that's being persecuted in, in Asia Minor, in Turkey, both in, in words and spheres of government and in the city, and physically they're being uh, punished, essentially, for being Christ ones, for being Christians. 
for following this Jesus. And so Peter encourages this little church. And we're given those words to to take hope amidst the suffering. To take hope amidst the suffering. We're going to be mainly in 1 Peter 4. If you wanted to follow along, we're going to hop, skip, and jump around um, because 1 Peter 3 and 4 in its totality is on the docket for this morning, but I won't torture you by reading all of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4. Just a few key verses that we can wrap our heads and our hearts around living hope and what it means to have hope amidst suffering. We read in 1 Peter 4, right off the bat, in verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Peter's way of saying that Jesus suffered in his body. He was beaten beyond recognition. The point of the crucifixion in Roman times was to completely devalue any sense of humanity that these criminals had. Jesus, of course, committing no sin, not being a criminal, sent to the cross for our behalf, beaten beyond recognition, brutally, to devalue his humanity, to make him appear not even as a person, but just as a, as a piece of flesh hanging from the tree, dying a criminal's death. And what we see in Jesus here as he's entering the city and moving towards the cross is this element of redemptive suffering, which is, I know, a loaded term for those of you who have come from a Catholic background. But in Jesus, not with us, but with Jesus, There's this element of redemptive suffering. There's purpose in Jesus going to the cross. His suffering brings all of humanity life and purpose and hope. Yeah. We're called to unite with Jesus' suffering. This is a tough one. To unite with Jesus in his suffering to make Christ real in a painful world. That's the nature of what it means to be human. You will experience pain. There's not one individual who's omitted from experiencing suffering in their life. And each suffering that every, each and every individual experience is valid. One not greater than the other. There's suffering in all of our lives because of the fall. Because of what we're told in Genesis. Now this thing of Jesus' redemptive suffering and how we experience suffering, I just want to make clear for those of you who who might have come out of a Catholic background that it's never God's desire to punish us. God, it's not God who's making people sick, right? Right? It's his intention to bring healing. We're told over and over in the word of God that Jesus is life. He brings life. He brings healing. He carries healing uh, uh, in his wings. He brings us into a, into, a, into a place of restoration and redemption. It's not his will for us to suffer. Jesus came so that we would have life and life abundant. And where there's life, there's no sickness. True life. True health is found in Jesus. 
His desire is always to heal us, always to love us, always to comfort us, always to care for us, never to hurt us, never to intentionally inflict pain upon us. We don't serve a... Me- uh, we don't serve a, a pain, vengeful, you know, God who just loves to, who's masochistic in a way, who just loves to mount pain on us. Oh, let them experience all the pain and, and all the world. That's not who the Father is. The Father came to relieve us of pain, not to inflict us with pain. And if we read deeper into that, we'll find that the one who does want to cause pain in our lives is the enemy, the enemy of God. The evil one, Satan, we read in the Gospels that it's him who, 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 who wants to kill, steal, and destroy from us. Destroy us. He's called the destroyer in the word. God has come to alleviate our suffering. He doesn't make us suffer. He doesn't make us sick. He doesn't want us to go through pain. He's a loving father. And yet, There's this thing of suffering in the person of Jesus. There's this thing of suffering that when we go through pain, we realize, God, you didn't send this affliction to me. You didn't send this pain to me. But I'm experiencing something of your withness in this moment that I couldn't if I didn't suffer. Yes? That he's near to the brokenhearted we read in Scripture. He's come to bind up our wounds. And how many of you know that if someone has come to mend you, nurses will know this, if, you, if someone's come to mend you or bind up your wounds, that, that that nurse is with you. You can't mend wounds from 3,000 miles away. You got to be close to the suffering. You got to be close to the individual who's experiencing the pain. And in the suffering of Jesus, what God is saying is that he is near to the brokenhearted. He's come to bind up the wounds of the desperate and, the, and, the, and those who are in despair. And he's with those who are suffering. He's with us amidst the suffering. So since Christ has suffered, Peter says, since Christ has suffered, because of his suffering, because of his suffering, what? In 1 Peter 3, 16, he writes this, Keep a good conscience. Since Christ has suffered, keep a good conscience. 3, 16, keeping a clear conscience, clear, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Here it is again. The righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in that body, but made alive in the Spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Lot to unpack there, but the main thing here is, again we see, that Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous Son of God, Jesus, suffering in our place. Again, coming to alleviate pain and alleviate suffering. And so knowing that, Peter says, keep a clear conscience. Don't give up. Don't give in. 
Don't back down from doing the right thing, even when no one's looking. Keep a clear conscience. Keep that connection between you and God unsevered, untethered to anything in this life. Whatever it is, keep at all costs your conscience clear. Keep accounts short with God. Why? Because Christ suffered to bring you back into intimacy, into closeness with God. Keep a clear conscience and share the sufferings and rejoice as we keep a clear conscience by grace alone, keeping in remembrance the suffering that Christ endured on his way to the cross and at the cross, that there's a place, Peter says, where we begin to identify and acknowledge that we not only share the sufferings, but we also are given a new posture amidst, 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 the, amidst the, the sufferings that we're able to somehow, in identifying with Christ's sufferings, that there's, there's some way, there's somehow that we're able to rejoice. We're actually able to give thanks that we're suffering. And again, it's so weird to say that, to hear the words coming out of my own mouth, yes? Because again, we're back to the the uh, masochistic kind of attitude of like, yeah, God, I love it. I love all of the suffering that you have. Bring me pain. Bring on a new, fresh mug of pain for me to drink down. I love it. All that I can handle. It's not that, right? But you know, and I know, of many folks who have gone through suffering, and you can see it in their eyes. There's this tested thing of knowing Jesus, Jesus being with that person in pain, Jesus being with us in pain. A wounded healer, Jesus was, and who we're called to be. We can share in these sufferings and actually come to a place where we rejoice that these circumstances are in our life because... It displays the glory and beauty and brilliance of who Jesus was at the cross and remains to this day. 1 Peter 4.13, Peter says, But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Overjoyed. When he comes again, overjoyed. When his glory is revealed. And so then, in the last verse of chapter 4, we're called to commit ourselves to God. <coughs> knowing that there is another side of the coin. There is, there is a beyond pain. There is a greater thing coming. That if you're going through suffering, when I experience suffering in my own life, if there's any sort of pain, it's a marker, not a destination. Amen? It's a marker that glory will be revealed in your life. If there was no pain and no suffering in your life, it sounds kind of, I'm not trying to sound pathetic here, but it, like, is there any glory? It's a marker in our lives to signify that greater glory is coming. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Not if his glory will be revealed. There's a good one for you. If you're going through suffering this morning, know that the scriptures say when his glory is revealed. 
It's not a question. If you're going through suffering, His glory is going to get revealed in your life. He will get glory from the suffering that you experience in your journey. Whether that suffering is related to a loved one who just won't turn to Christ, who just won't submit their lives, maybe a son or a daughter who's walked away from Jesus. If you're experiencing suffering in your body, maybe it's a, ter- uh, a diagnosis of terminal cancer in your body. Maybe it's suffering through a relationship, a tough one at work that you just can't seem to get your eyes off of. God's glory is going to be revealed in the exact pinpoint places where you experience pain. Those are the places that God wants to show up the most. Not the places that are just fine and dandy and going well in our lives, but the points of pain and suffering are the greatest incubators for God's glory to be revealed in your and my journey. That's it right there. So Peter says to rejoice in our sufferings because what Peter knows is that those places are the same places God will reveal himself as good and loving and caring and kind and compassionate. Those are the places where others can look in your journey and say, God is real because look what that person is going through. Christ is real. Because look what that person is going through, yet there's a peace in their lives knowing that glory will be revealed on the other side of that pain and that suffering. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're going through it, and I know many of you are, wherever you're going through it, that that place, even though it doesn't look like it right now because you're going through it, even though it seems like it won't ever end, That God will show his goodness to you in that place. Whether here or in glory, glory will come. Your marriage will be restored. Your loved one who has passed away is alive more than ever in the presence of Jesus right now. In the greatest point of suffering, in the end of suffering, which is death, the final blow, Jesus said at the cross, even death, even the deepest point of suffering, and death, even death is conquered. It's swallowed up in the victory of Jesus at the cross and raised from the grave to say that life has the final word, not suffering. Suffering never gets to put the period at the end of the sentence. There's life on the other side of it. And we can have hope in that this morning. And we can take courage in the words of Jesus that he is life. He is hope. He's the way. So if you're going through it this morning, take hope in the person of Jesus. Participate with him. You see how Peter says participate with him. That's a tough challenge for us. Those are hard words from Peter to his little church. Participate with Jesus. I don't want to participate with Jesus in suffering. Who's up for, you know, grounds clean up on Saturday the, 20th, or Saturday the 16th and trail clean up? Sign me up for that. Okay, who wants to participate with Jesus in suffering on April 24th? Raise your hand. Sign up right, right over here. You know, it's not something that we want to sign up for to participate, to actually say, okay, sign me up for that. That would be wonderful. I want to go, I want to move as far away from suffering as I can. I want to run the other way. Participate with Jesus in his suffering. See ya later. I'm out. I'm out. But the kindness of God is right there. It's right there to participate with Jesus. As a mechanism 
to see his glory revealed in our lives. We can commit ourselves to him. First Peter 4, 19. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Don't give up, don't give in, Peter's saying. Don't give up, don't give in. And from that understanding of God meeting us in our suffering, we can there surrender and commit ourselves to God even when we don't fully understand why it is that we suffer. Even when we can't see an end to it. We can give ourselves in trust to Jesus. There's a grace there to stand firm amidst the suffering. That's where we find hope this Palm Sunday, headed into Holy Week, that suffering always leads to resurrection. Suffering always leads to resurrection. If you're suffering this morning, take heart. You're on the road to new birth. If you're in pain this morning, you're on the pathway to glorious new birth. Suffering always precedes resurrection. And that's my encouragement to all of us this morning, myself included. That when we go through times of pain, places of suffering, that resurrection is coming. Hope is coming. Jesus' story didn't end at the cross, and neither will yours. Isn't that beautiful? And though a cross may be in front of you, the cross isn't your final destination. Your final destination is to be raised with Jesus to new life. Suffering always precedes resurrection. And because of Holy Week, we can see that just as Jesus' suffering was leading to resurrection, so may ours. When victory is not happening, when our questions are left unanswered, when the pain doesn't go away and healing doesn't happen, we see Jesus walking with us through suffering. He's not left us swept away in our pain. He's given us a framework for suffering. If we have eyes to see it in our turmoil, eyes to see it, our suffering, our void, our confusion, if we invite the Holy Spirit into the middle of it, our suffering becomes holy. It actually becomes holy before God. And the purpose and intention of God is introduced into our pain and confusion in life and resurrection and creation will come from it. We can stand and sing through it all. As the psalmist David did, this is it. This is the goods. Psalm 30, 1 through 5. I love it. David writes this. David sings this. David, in the middle of pain, lifts the song up to God. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called for you to help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord. You, his faithful people, praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only for a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning.
Some of you already know what story I'm going to tell. But, um, and I don't know why. It's a crazy story. And I wanted to show you the video, um, but I was encouraged that it's a long video. So I'll just post it on the church's Facebook, and you can come and check out the video later on the church's Facebook. But it just, it's such a curious story, and it's so strange, and yet it brought me just so much hope this week. Amidst preparing for this talk and everything that we see going on in our world. And I found myself during the week just meditating and reflecting on it. And every morning watching that video. And why am I so attracted to this video? Like it's giving me so much hope, Jesus. I feel your presence when I watch it. And, and I suppose it was giving me hope. Like Jesus was giving me hope through the video because it shows me that like things that I think are dead or some things that I think are extinct or lost or gone forever, that even those things will rise again. Even those things, those are the places where God wants to bring new life. And the story is this, that in 70 AD, oh yeah, it's a, it's a history story, of course, come on. Um, in 70 AD, when the Romans sacked Jerusalem and just destroyed, uh, destroyed the city, there's this famous story, and you guys might be familiar with this, that the last remaining Jews go to the fortress or the mountain of Masada. Is that word familiar? Masada. And so what happens at Masada is famous through the ages, and, and the people of Israel hold it up as, um, as a touch point for how faithful God is to them, but the resilience and strength of the Jewish people. What happens at Masada, as the city is being sacked and burned to the ground, there's a group of Jews who would, instead of putting themselves into slavery again, having gone through the Egyptians and all of that for, for decades and centuries, they said no more. And in a, in a, in a moment of just um, mass protest, they all take their own lives and they commit suicide rather than see themselves being turned over into the hands of the Romans. And as they're doing this, or right before they do this, they take all of the food stores that are left for the people of Israel. And they burn them all because they don't want the food to fall into the hands of the enemy, into the hands of the Romans. They burn all of the food stores except for one. They save one food store. Fast forward to the 1960s as the site at Masada is being excavated and, and archaeologists find this final food store. They unearth it. They dig it up. And what they find in this food store is one jar filled with seeds. Ha. Ah. And they dig up these seeds, and the seeds sit at some excavation site for decades until finally these two older ladies here um, today take it upon themselves to germinate the seeds. 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, what they find is that um, the species of extinct Judean date palm, the seeds are in this jar. For 2,000 years, this palm tree has not been seen on the face of the earth. History says it's gone. When the crusaders come in, they burn the last of the Judean date palm. Jesus ate these dates, y'all. 
And these two women, they take it upon themselves to care for and mother these seeds, essentially. And, and one woman, she's not as familiar with biology. That's not even her field, but she's involved in this uh, germination process. One, one of the seeds finally sprouts after caring for it for so long. And the, the other woman, who's a biologist, she calls her up and says, hey, just wanted to let you know, in passing, she calls her up and says, hey, just wanted to let you know one of the seeds, it sprouted last week. You know, just thought you should know. And she said, are you serious? This is history in the making. And so this date palm from, a, from a, uh, an extinct, ungerminated 2,000-year-old seed begins to sprout again. And so they care for it, and they water it, and it grows, and it grows, and they named it Methuselah, this date tree. And these date palms, they're not unlike human beings. They, the trees need a, a male tree to pollinate the female date tree, and that's where the fruit is born. And they have a limited number of seeds, and so they try, you know, they try again, they try again, and either it fails, or they keep on getting male trees. That's the problem with us, guys. They keep on getting male trees, and then finally, finally, the female tree sprouts. And they name the female tree Judith. And so the male date tree pollinates the female date tree, and these dates are born. They haven't been seen on the face of the earth for 2,000 years. And suddenly, this is all within the last year and a half, I just took it as a sign of hope that some seeds in your life have gone through suffering. Some seeds in my life I think are dead or extinct or lost or gone forever. Jesus says that is not the end of the story. He wants to bring life where there's death. He wants to bring hope where there's been suffering. Don't you want to taste those dates? <laughs> Even if you're not a date person, these are the, this is the fruit that Jesus ate. Maybe some of the branches that were waved and thrown at his feet of what we celebrate as Palm Sunday came from this tree, now extinct at the hands of evil men who wanted to take over a country and haven't seen these date palms in over 2,000 years, a sign of hope for you and for me this morning here at Vineyard Cleveland that he does make all things new. He is in the process of recreating you. And even though it doesn't seem like it, even though it seems like those seeds in your life are dormant or extinct or lost or gone forever, Jesus says they're found, and I want to sprout them again in your life. I want to give you hope this morning. 